Now, last week, I gave you a four-part definition of what the message of the gospel should entail. And I even gave you a nice little acronym for that. Who remembers what that little word is, that acronym? Anyone? Anyone remember? All right. Okay. Several of you calling it out. Glad. I'm glad that you learned something. That's good. Stir. We should be stirred up by the gospel. We should be moved by the message of salvation, transformation, invitation, and restoration that is the gospel. The message of the gospel encompasses all four of those things. And the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15, especially verses 3 and 4, they really lay out the fact that the good news of Jesus Christ starts, it starts with the message of salvation. And the message of salvation centers on the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died, he was buried, he rose again to life, and then there were hundreds of witnesses to his resurrection. That is the center of the life of Christ, which encompasses the message of salvation. And so scripture says that anyone who trusts in the sacrifice, the death and resurrection of Christ, to be the means through which they are made right with God, to be the way that you can stand before God and say, I am worthy to be here, is by saying, I have trusted in Jesus to cleanse me, to purify me, to forgive me, to make me right. That is the message of salvation. And that's a very simplified version of it. But that is the starting point of the gospel. And we saw lastly that unlike what many Christians will do, we, don't, we cannot end at the salvation message. We have to move also to the message of transformation, which we saw in verses 9 and 10. And this is the good news that God will continue to transform us, continue to make us more and more like Him as we submit to Him and pursue Him and follow Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That He's not going to leave us like we were. He is going to draw us closer to Him as the power of His Spirit and His grace transforms us. That's very good news. I mean, I'm glad that I'm not the man that I was, and I'm glad that in 10 years from now, I'm not going to be the man I am today. By God's grace, I will be transformed to look more and more like Jesus. That's good news. Amen. And then in verse 11, we also saw that the good news is a message of invitation, where God actually gives us a purpose. He says, I have a job for you to do. I'm going to invite you to be a part of my mission to redeem this world and restore all of creation. That's good news. Because if you ever thought that your life was meaningless or purposeless, the gospel says otherwise. You have been invited to be a part of the work of God. That is an amazing privilege, and that is very good news. 
And then we saw through the remainder of the chapter that the gospel is not only a message of salvation and transformation and invitation, it is also a message of restoration. Restoration of all things. Since Christ has defeated death, he has risen, he has ascended to heaven, he is alive and he's coming back. Amen. And when he returns, he will restore all things as he ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. And everything that God intended from the very beginning of creation will be put back to place, restored, more glorious than it's ever been before. That is part of the good news And the gospel that we preach, the gospel that we preach to ourselves, the gospel that we preach to those around us, it has to include all four of these elements, otherwise it is an incomplete message. The gospel should stir us up, like we talked about last week, right? Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day of Christ's return draws near. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. We should be stirred up by the gospel. Now, having laid that foundation, I just wanna take all of those four elements a little step further and look at some of, well, why it matters. What are the practical implications of that? Why does it matter that I see the full scope of the gospel, and I have a full view of each of those four elements of the gospel. And so we're gonna begin with salvation and go through each of the four. Now there are so many things that can be included in the implications from not seeing the whole gospel in these four elements, so I'm just just trying to cherry pick a couple of the ones that I get particularly passionate about. And I get particularly passionate about them because they were traps that I have fallen into in the past and things that I have to continue to be vigilant in my own life by the grace of God not to fall into again. And I think that there are traps that are common for all of us to fall into. And so let's look at verse three through six of 1 Corinthians 15 again. Read along with me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Now we talked about how these verses contain the core of the message of salvation. And of all the aspects of the gospel message, salvation is probably the one, not probably, it is definitely the one that evangelicals focus on the most, and it's also the one that we probably understand the best. That's a good thing. But where I think we often fall short is in our understanding and explaining what the full message I'm getting an echo here, what the full message of the gospel actually is. The devil does not want this preached. 
And what I mean by that is, what is the full message of salvation? The full message of salvation includes not just the answer, which is Jesus, but it also includes an explanation of the question. Why is Jesus the only way to salvation? Why did he have to die? And this leads to the first very common problem and implication of narrowly presenting the gospel as the message that all we need to do is trust in Jesus to save us and we'll receive salvation. A narrow view of the message of salvation leads very quickly to neglect of the Old Testament in particular but really to an inability to explain or understand why Jesus is the answer. In short, it leads to weak theology. We just don't know why we believe what we believe. And that's a result of a narrow view of the message of salvation. When all we focus on is understanding and explaining the answer to the problem, we don't actually learn why the answer is the answer. And if we don't understand the why, then we risk developing a skewed and faulty theology that will lead us away from the actual gospel. I was just talking to someone earlier this week, and they were saying how, wow, the gospel, never saw it like that before. I'm so glad I'm a Christian. But, you know, there are lots of other ways to heaven too. But I, you know, I've, I've chosen Jesus. I put my trust in him. He's saved me. And, and, and that's what I'm talking about here. Like, there are many people who would count themselves followers of Christ, Christians. But they don't understand why they're actually believing what they're believing. It's like, when I... When I was growing up, I, I was actually, I was born in California, and I spent most of my early childhood in California. And in kindergarten through second grade, the school system in California decided that they were going to use a brand new way of teaching kids how to read. And so instead of teaching phonics, you guys, you know phonics, right? Hooked on phonics worked for me, right? You know, sound out the letters and read. They decided that they were going to use a system that relied on memorization and sight words. And so instead of learning that A, N, and D make the A, N, D, and sound, I just had to memorize that that letter, that letter, and that letter mean and. And so for three years, that's how I learned how to read. Well, we moved out of California, and about the same time I moved out of California, the school districts changed back to teaching phonics because they had a whole generation of kids who couldn't read, and I was one of them. <laughs> and so I memorized all kinds of words, and I was so excited that I could read the cat in the hat, but when I came across a word that I didn't know how to read, I didn't have memorized, 
I had no idea how to actually sound it out and read it for myself. It wasn't until I spent hours and hours a day after school with Sister Marianne from Christ the King Elementary School, God bless her heart, I am very thankful she was a patient nun. (laughs) She needed all the patience she could get with me. (laughs) She taught me how to read. She taught me phonics. She taught me the proper way. She taught me the why, not just the answer. But I think that we do this with our faith all the time. We are so used to hearing the answer and saying the answer and giving the answer that we don't know the why, and that is a result of a narrow view of the full message of salvation. We can get so caught up in Jesus as the answer that we have no idea why Jesus is the answer. And we memorize the answer, but we can't actually explain it. When someone asks us why, many of us will give John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Acts 4, 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now those verses are true and right and accurate, but all they do is restate the answer. (laughs) They don't actually explain why. Look back at verses 3 and 5. Do you see the two times that the phrase in accordance with the Scriptures is used in those verses? If I were you, I would circle those in your Bibles right now. I'd circle them because Paul is very intentionally drawing on the Word of God contained in the Old Testament to explain why Jesus Christ is the answer to God's promise to send a Savior. We don't have enough time to dig into a deep explanation, but I want to give you what I hope you can later study in more depth so that you can begin to answer the why. You can begin to have a full perspective of the message of salvation. And so we've got to recognize first and foremost that the the message of salvation begins all the way back at creation. It doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. It certainly doesn't start with the death of Jesus. Pastor Tim has been using a very helpful illustration throughout the Jonah series. Throw that up on the screen for me. And with this illustration, he shows chronologically the gospel. Now, the stir definition of the gospel isn't addressing it chronologically. It's addressing it more in terms of what happens to you because of the gospel. It's more of an internal account of the message of the good news. This addresses it chronologically, and we see that the message of salvation begins at the fact that God created the world as a perfect paradise, where we could be in fellowship with Him and where He walked with us. That is what God intends for His creation, all of creation, to have with Him. But at the fall, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, creation was broken, 
And as Romans 5.12 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And there are lots of verses in Romans, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, the whole Romans road, if you've heard that term before, that speak to the salvation message starting at creation, proceeding through the fall, ultimately getting to Jesus' life, death, resurrection. That's the redemption part of it that we see. All of that is included in the message of salvation. But why did this Messiah, who God actually promised, do you want to know the first preaching of the gospel? It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, if you want a fancy term for it, or the first gospel, the original gospel. And it's where God promises that the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, will destroy the enemy, but it will come at the cost of that Redeemer, that Deliverer, that Messiah being mortally wounded and killed. That is the first preaching of the gospel, and it's way back in Genesis 3. And then all through the Old Testament, look at Isaiah 53 and elsewhere, that message is repeated. That's all part of the message of salvation that we need to include. But why, why did the Messiah have to be killed? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, that answer is found in probably the least read book in the entire Bible. How many of you have read Leviticus lately? Huh? That's a real page turner. Love that one. Well, it's in Leviticus. Write this down, Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Write down Hebrews 9.22 as well, Hebrews 9.22 and Leviticus 17.11. 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, God is love, and He is gracious and forgiving and merciful, but He is also perfectly righteous and just. And in His perfect righteousness and justice, God demands that sin be paid for. That is why Jesus had to die, or at least some human had to die. But the thing is, and you see this if you read through Leviticus chapters 4 through 6, any sin offering or guilt offering that was offered up to God has to be completely unblemished, perfect, spotless, sinless. And so, if it was possible for someone to live a perfect life and then die as a sacrifice, well, anyone could have done it, but it's, it's not possible for a mere human to do that, which is why Jesus Christ, who is fully divine, the Son of God, 
in his divinity had to come down and take on humanity, fully God and fully man, so that a man could die as a sacrifice for humanity, but a God could live sinlessly and be perfect, unblemished. That's why Jesus is called in John chapter one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the only one who it was possible to not only fulfill the righteous requirements that God had, but to also be an acceptable sacrifice for creation, for humanity. By man, sin entered the world, and by man, it had to be redeemed. Now, study Hebrews 7 through 11. That really also dives into it. Get a good commentary when you do. That'll help. But this, I know this is some heavy theology here, and we, we kind of, our head might start to spin a little bit. I'm just scratching the surface here. Um, but it's important that we understand the why. Parents, teach your children the why. Help them to understand that it's not just that Jesus died for their sins. There's so much more to the message of salvation because if we don't, then we're susceptible to the deceptions of the enemy, the lies of the enemy that will come in and prey on the fact that we don't know the why. But I've got to move on. Secondly, why is a full view of transformation important? Let's go back to verses one and two of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, as we saw last week, the gospel message is not only a message of salvation, it is also a message of transformation. That God has saved us, and he is going to keep us saved as we submit to him as Lord of our lives, and he sanctifies us, he transforms us, he makes us holy. That's good news. But a view of the gospel that doesn't include the message of transformation typically falls victim to two massive, massive mistakes. And we see them here. The first is, it leads to an intellectual faith, and it leads to a lack of appreciation for or pursuit of discipleship. When all we do is emphasize the importance of someone believing in Jesus, praying a prayer, and then being saved, we are unintentionally creating a culture that makes faith all about what you think intellectually. And that is not faith. This is why so many people, especially so many young people brought up in the church, they walk away from their faith, from their intellectual belief. Because it was only ever an intellectual concept that they grew up with, 
and they never learned what it meant to truly submit all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength to our God. They learned to just believe a nice little story about some God-man dying on the cross to take away my, that's great, yeah, I believe that, until it was more convenient to replace that intellectual concept with something that allowed them to live their lives in a way that they wanted to live. This is what Paul calls believing in vain in our passage here. Intellectual assent by itself is empty, it's vain, it's meaningless if it's not also accompanied by submission of all of ourselves to the Lord. This is what James chapter two is talking about when James talks about how faith without works is dead. Intellectual belief apart from a lived out submission to God is empty. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. He's being sarcastic there, in case you never got that from that passage. Because he quickly follows it up with, even the demons believe and shudder. Faith is not about belief, but when we narrow the gospel to the message of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and pray this prayer and you're good, we are making it all about an intellectual acceptance. A gospel message that doesn't include the good news of transformation through submission to Christ runs the very great risk of leading people into an empty intellectual faith, if it can even be called faith. And then what happens is that people then struggle with their identity as children of God. Maybe this is something that you can relate to, something that I could relate to. Because if it is, if you struggle with that identity, then I would encourage you to ask yourself, what is my view of the gospel? What is my view of the good news? The more I learn to submit myself, all of myself, to Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Master and not just my Savior, the more I learn to be transformed by him, the more God's grace and spirit move in me and I become more and more of the child of God that, that scripture says I am. If we have a weak identity as a child of God, then we probably lack spiritual confidence in a lot of areas and we're gonna be susceptible to the attacks and the lies of the enemy. That's the result of this intellectual-based faith as opposed to a full faith where we are submitting all of ourselves. I gotta move on. But failure to include the gospel of the good news of transformation not only produces empty intellectual belief, it also produces a culture that doesn't appreciate or pursue discipleship whatsoever. A message that says, all I have to do is pray a prayer and intellectually accept Jesus to be saved and doesn't include Christ's call to follow him and be his disciple creates a culture of immature an unwise Christian 
men and women who at best remain infantile in their faith. That was me. And by God's grace, I'm, I'm maturing through that. But Christ calls us to be disciples, to be transformed as we follow him, to pour into one another, to, to fellowship with one another. A huge reason, I believe, why so many evangelical churches, and, and there's no other way to say it, evangelicalism is just pathetic when it comes to discipleship. It really is. And the reason is because we have narrowed the gospel. And when that happens, there is no intentional development of people in their faith. There is no coming alongside and pulling someone along and saying, hey, come on, we gotta get off of the milk and get to the meat. Let's move, let's get through this. And then when that happens, we begin to judge spiritual maturity by the same standards that the world judges success by. Oh, that guy's prosperous, he must be he must be right with God, walking close. Oh, that guy's educated. Oh, that lady's doing really well. They must be super spiritual. No, no. Where is the appreciation for and respect for the holy men and women who pursue God? Who the evidence of the Spirit working in their lives is so clear. Those are the men and women who we should be seeking to emulate, not the guy who drives a nice car and has the good job and who seems to know all the answers. We can't fall into this trap. We have to have a full view of the message of transformation so that we appreciate what whole faith looks like and it's not just an intellectual ascent and that we pursue maturing and being discipled by those men and women who can pour into us and spur us on to being a follower, a disciple of our Lord. But a lack of discipleship is not only due to a failure to include God's message of transformation in the good news, it's also due to a lack of including God's message of invitation in the good news. If the gospel message that we proclaim and as we understand it doesn't include God's invitation to be a part of the work he's doing, if we don't walk in the purpose that he has given us, then not only will we not seek to be discipled, but we won't make any effort to make disciples either. And that's what Jesus commanded us to do. Some of his last words and the last verses in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And I know you've heard this before, but it bears repeating. We're not to make converts. We're not to make people who intellectually assent to Jesus as Savior. We are to make disciples of our Lord and Master and King, Jesus Christ. 
If we don't understand the good news as a message of invitation, then we're missing out on the work the Lord has created us to do. And worse than that, we run the tremendous risk of making our faith all about us, all about me, and how I personally benefit from this. And that is just our consumerist culture infiltrating our thinking and approach to our faith. We can't make it about us. If all we view the message of the gospel is, is how I can be saved, then I'm making it a message about me. And when I approach the gospel that way, then I'm probably going to approach the rest of my faith walk that way. And instead of me seeking out how I can strengthen the body of Christ and how I can bring the gifts that the Lord has given me to bear to use them to fulfill the mission that I have been given, all I look for is how the body of Christ can benefit me. And I don't seek out a church family or a ministry that I can pour into, that I can be a part of, that I can grow with, I look for a church family or a ministry that's going to make me feel good about myself, that's going to tickle my ears, that's going to be a fun worship experience, it isn't really going to challenge me at all. That's consumerist faith, and that is not the gospel. It's not. We are called to commit to one another through the good times and the bad times. We're a family. And sometimes, I really don't like my brothers and sisters. They're jerks. But they're still my brothers and sisters. And I'm going to love them and I'm going to work through the difficult times. And sometimes it's no fun to go and do the hard work that's out there for me to do. I mean, how many of you really enjoy and love your jobs? If you do, that's a blessing. Sometimes the work that the Lord calls you to do stinks. And you know why it stinks? Because he's trying to mature you and grow you and, 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 gr- and I can't even think of the word for it help you to blossom into a beautiful rose. I'm so poetic. This is all part of what we are invited to be a part of, but if we neglect that, if we don't press into that, we will miss out and we make it all about us. That is not the gospel. The gospel isn't about me. The gospel is about us. And hopefully more and more and more and more and more of us as we faithfully and boldly share the good news, the whole good news. Because the reality is that if you're content consuming church and faith as one more commodity that this world has to offer, then we're missing it. We're missing the gospel. We forget 
that the gospel is not just salvation, not just transformation, not just invitation, but it's also ultimately about the fact that Jesus Christ is gonna return and he is gonna restore all things and this world that we live in is gonna fade away. 1 John chapter two says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world is passing away along with everything in it. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. When we miss out on the fact that the gospel invites us to be a part of what God is doing and that God is going to restore all things, a full view of the message of restoration, if we don't have that, if we have narrowed it down from that, then we are gonna be taken in by the world. That's just what's gonna happen. And I find myself, instead of looking to the future and anxiously awaiting Christ's return, I'm anxiously awaiting whatever the world has to offer. And then I get it, and I'm very quickly dissatisfied, and then I'm looking for the next thing. And the next thing. Dissatisfaction, discontentment, unhappiness, spiraling depression. All of these things can be the result of a narrow view of the gospel. Because we don't remind ourselves that this world is fading away and my hope is in Jesus coming back and restoring all things. We have to have that as part of our view of the gospel. We can't get stuck looking at this world that is gonna fade away because we don't see the full picture of the gospel. And that brings us back to the James family and the diamond that they gave away, the Eureka diamond, because, well, they only saw just a little bit of the glean on it. Now that neighbor, that neighbor who got the diamond, he appreciated it. He chipped away all of the excess stone to reveal the diamond and then he took it to a gemologist and he had it polished and cut into a brilliant, radiant gem that is amazing to behold. And every which way you turn it, the angle of it shows the brilliance of its beauty. That should be how we approach the gospel. That we dig deep and we see it from every angle and all of its glory and all of its beauty and all of its brilliance. And the Eureka Diamond, it's actually been put on display now in a museum in South Africa because it was the first diamond discovered. And every year, tens of thousands of people visit it to see the beauty of that fully sculpted diamond. It's on display for the whole world to see. And that's what we need to do. We recognize the diamond of the gospel for the beauty that it is in all of its amazing facets. 
and then we put it on display for the world to see as we live it out, as we live out our salvation, as we live out our transformation, as we live out the, ins- the invitation, as we are inspired, inspiration to do so. I can throw a bunch of other words in there. Ultimately looking forward to the restoration of all things. I pray that we would be a people who marvel at the whole brilliance of the good news diamond and that we go from here living out the full message of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for your son. And I thank you that